Um, If you have a Bible with you, can I encourage you to turn it to the book of Galatians? Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 20. We are momentarily picking up with our series in Galatians again. Um, We had stopped it just because of Christmas, so we could have a wee look at things a wee bit more festive. But we are now, for one Sunday and one Sunday only, dipping back into it before we then have a series on eldership. Um, So we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to start reading at verse 8. So let's hear God speak to us. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who were by nature not God's. But now you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all, all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous provided the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Amen. And this is God's word. Um, as we maybe it's been a wee while since we were in the book of Galatians, I'll just do a wee recap about what has been happening for us to arrive at what Paul has said in this letter. What has happened is Galatia, which is um, in modern day Turkey, um, was a pagan area with various temples to other gods and other religions. And Paul, on his first missionary journey, he travels to Galatia and he starts various churches around the different cities in Galatia in the province. And after he's done that, he then goes back to Jerusalem. And while he's back in Jerusalem, um, a group show up, a group of missionaries show up, something we would think would be good and would be great. But this is a very different sort of missionary because these are Christian missionaries who think that in order to be a Christian, you have to observe the Old Testament laws, all those laws about observing what you eat, observing sort of certain festivals, making sure that you observe certain days. And in a sense that the way you become a Christian is by first and foremost by becoming Jewish. And Paul wants to write to correct that because he sees this as an issue that is fundamental to everything about Christianity. Because Christianity is not just another religion filled with rituals and things to be observed. But Christianity is first and foremost good news. And what the Galatians had begun to believe in wasn't good news. And this passage that we looked at here 
we can see Paul alluding to all the ways that the culture around him is filled with things that are bad news, filled with religions that are, as he says in the passage, enslavement, enslavement. And he wants to show that in the gospel and the gospel alone is their actual real freedom. So this morning we're gonna look at how there's really four different types of religion at play. Um, and the first one we see is Galatian paganism, which is down in verse eight. So if you look down, it says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who, are, who by nature are not gods. Well, what Paul's alluding here to is the, the various sorts of pagan temples there were in Galatia. Um, we don't know specifically what sort of pagan temples they were. We know that um, there was a temple to the god Zeus, Boys and girls, have any of you ever seen Hercules, the Disney film? I don't know, this it was, it came out whenever I was a kid. I don't know if it's old hat now. But in that, you see Zeus, the, the ancient Greek god, um, as a cartoon. And what Zeus was like as a god was, Zeus was the father of all gods, and he's a big white beard. And he, he would throw thunderbolts down from the heavens whenever he saw people doing things that he didn't like. Um, you would, whenever you went to the temple of Zeus, you would have to take an animal with you and sacrifice it. You'd have to pay towards their priestly class that were there. It was a religion all about trying to make sure that you didn't anger Zeus too much or else he was gonna throw a lightning bolt down and zap you. So that's one of the sort of pagan religions that was going on. The other one that we know for certain was there was in a city called Pisidia of Iconium. And it, uh, it was a temple that was built to a type of religion we don't really have anymore. And a type of religion probably confuses us a wee bit. It was a religion called the, the imperial cult. An imperial cult was a Roman religion where you worshiped the fact that you were a Roman. And it was a temple that was built mainly to the emperor Augustus to try and show that the fact that he was emperor meant that he wasn't just an elected official like our officials would be, but it was a temple built to show the glory of emperor Augustus and how he was not just man, but he was also God and should be worshiped. And so if you wanted to hold civil office, if you wanted to become a politician, or even if you just wanted to become something like a postman or a merchant, you would have to go into the temple of the imperial cult, worship the emperor Augustus, and you would have to sacrifice animals to it. And it was a religion all about trying to cement the power of the state. It would be a wee bit like if Arlene Foster or Michelle O'Neill decided that we should all go down and worship them in Stormont and we'd have to sacrifice to a golden effigy of them. Um, that's the sort of thing that's going on. It feels very weird to us now. We don't have anything like it, um, apart from maybe in North Korea. But it was a religion that was concerned primarily about maintaining power. Because if you were a big Roman empire, you wanted to make sure you'd control over as many people as possible. And so you, in a sense, built a religion to do that. And that was the imperial cult. It was a way of maintaining Roman authority by saying that, well, the Romans are not just from Italy, they're from God. And Paul says that these religions, it's not just that they're wrong, it's not just that there's something bad about them, but they are enslavement. They are like being slaves if you follow those gods. Now, some of you might think, well, that's not very fair to say that, you know, they have their views about God and we have our views about God. How is Paul somebody who can turn around and say that if you follow those gods, you are enslaved? 
And one of the reasons we think that is that probably whenever we think about ancient religions like uh, the, the worship of Zeus or the, the worship of the imperial cult is that we think of religion the way we think about religion as we see it today. We think it about as something that, you might think it as something that maybe makes you a better person. You might think about it as something that maybe gives you a sense of meaning. You might think about it as something that is just something you do as a nice routine that makes you a nice, lovely person. Or you might think that it's tied up with the idea that we are forgiven in God who forgives freely and who's trying to show his love to us through his son. That is not the sort of religion that's working out in the ancient world. The ancient world is not a religion that is concerned about moral improvement. It's not a religion that's concerned about the flourishing of modern society. The ancient world was concerned about having a God who kept you on your toes because if you didn't follow in line, the hammer would come down and get you. If you don't follow the right sacrifices to Zeus, he will zap you with a thunderbolt from the heavens. If you don't worship the imperial Roman cult, probably more terrifying, you will end up with a whole pile of legionnaires at your door and they're not there for a cup of tea. You are there, they were primarily there to cement power and to make you afraid and to make you think, if I do the wrong thing, they'll get me. It's enslavement. A historian, Tom Holland, um, wrote that the heroes of the Iliad, the favorites of the gods, the golden, the predatory, scorned the weak and the downtrodden. So too, for all the honor of Julian, um, which was one of the emperors at the time that he wrote this book, he said that, that they, were, they were trying to have no sympathy whatsoever. Beggars were best rounded up and deported. Pity risked undermining a wise man's self-control. Only fellow citizens of good character who through their own fault, or through no fault of their own, sorry, had fallen in even days might conceivably merit assistance. The ancient world wasn't like a world like ours where if you see somebody uh, sitting on the side of the street begging, you, you know, we want to give them a pound or we want to give them a little bit of something or show some sort of pair, care and attention to them. We would see that as the moral thing to do. And the reason we do that is because we live in a society that's been influenced by Christianity. But if you were an ancient Roman or an ancient Greek and you saw somebody begging at the side of the street, the moral thing in that society to do as you were walking past would have been to kick the beggar. That's how foreign this was. It is the world turned upside down because people who are down on their luck, people who deserve pity, it's not that they deserve pity, it's because that they've done something bad in their lives and they're now getting their comeuppance. If somebody's sick, it's because they deserved it. If somebody's poor, it's because they deserved it. If somebody is attacked, it's because they deserved it. That was the ancient world. That's not a religion of hope. That's not a religion that gives life. That's slavery, and that's why Paul says, you were slaves whenever you followed those gods. So that's the first religion. There's a second religion. The second religion is the, the Christian-Jewish hybrid that has shown up in Galatia after Paul has been away. You see that in verses 9 to 12 where it says that, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? This might sound quite strange because it might sound like they're turning back to the ancient Greek paganism or to the imperial cult that he was referring to at first. But what he's referring to here and what he's trying to get across here is that the fact that they are corrupting the gospel 
by saying that it's not just about trusting in Jesus, it's not just about receiving and resting in him, but it's about following all these religious laws and commandments and making sure you observe the festivals and making sure you observe the cleanliness laws, that it is as if they were turning back to those ancient pagan cults. It is as if they are turning back to slavery. And this is Paul, who was a rabbi. This is Paul, who was a teacher of the Old Testament before he became a Christian. This is Paul, who loved his God so much that he wanted to persecute Christians because he thought they were detracting from them. This is Paul, who knew the Bible inside out, who had great reverence for the Old Testament but says that this addition that they have made of saying you must follow the religious laws and you must, in effect, become Jewish to become a Christian, it is as bad as the cult of Zeus. It is as bad as the cult of the Roman Empire. It is slavery once again. And the reason it's slavery is because it takes the good news of Christianity that is our forgiveness is given freely as a gift in Jesus and it makes it into something you earn. It makes it into something you have to do. Because if our faith became about making sure you observe the right feasts and the right days, and that's what he's alluding to whenever it says in, uh, in verse 12, or in verse, sorry, verse 10, where it says that you're observing special days, which we can take to mean the special days like the Day of Atonement and the months, which would be some of the religious festivals like the Festival of Tents and the Seasons and Years. Those are all the Jewish festivals. He says, because you've went back to following them and you think your assurance comes from them and you think your hope comes from following them, you will never be satisfied and never have the full assurance of Jesus. It's like slavery because when have you followed the law well enough. If they sinned again, they were right back at square one in their worldview because they thought, well, now I need to start go, I now need to perform a sacrifice, I need to go do this and that. Rather than saying I'm free because I am forgiven by God, they were enslaved by constantly thinking they had to do more. And so then we see there's another kind of religion. And that religion is probably the religion that we have today. That we are all religious in some way. And we all love that idea that we can earn God's favor. Um, we might not think that we're terribly religious now. Um, you probably see the statistics that show that church attendance is on the decline in the majority of the Western world. Um, and yet, just because you don't go to church or a temple doesn't mean you're not religious. And just because you don't say prayers or have a holy book doesn't mean you don't think things are sacred. Just because you don't think you believe in God doesn't mean you're not worshiping something. The American author, David Foster Wallace, um, who's not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, he wrote this. He said, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that anything else will eat you alive. What are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? 
What is the one thing in your life that you have put on center stage? And is that thing able to hold up your hopes and cares and concerns that you wish it could? Maybe it's your career. Maybe you're holding out for a a new post, a promotion, and you will do anything to get at it. And we all know people like this if we don't even see it in ourselves, where we see our family relationships and our friendships damaged because we will push to get more and more from the career or from the job that at the end of the day, we've spent far more hours in the office than we ever dreamed. And suddenly our family don't know who we are anymore. Or maybe we think we just need a wee bit more money. There's a, we all probably know the famous, or the infamous quote from J.D. Rockefeller, who was a famous billionaire in America, who was asked, how much, how much money's enough? And he said, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Do you think what got you through the coronavirus was the fact that you had enough savings in the bank account? Do you think what will get you through this year is if the paychecks keep rolling in? Do you think you'll be content? And do you think you'll be happy as long as you get away on that holiday, as long as you maintain this level of lifestyle? All the while your heart says, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Or maybe that thing that takes center stage in your life is something that we maybe think is a good thing. Maybe it's family. Family, we might think, how could that ever be uh, something that shouldn't be at the center of our lives? But we all know people who have placed their family or their relationships on an idol that people were never meant to bear. There's a writer, Tim Keller, who said that He was talking about marriage when he wrote this, but we can probably apply it to most of our relationships. He says, putting the weight of all your deepest hopes and longing on the person you are marrying, you're going to crush him or her with your expectations. It will distort your spouse's life in a hundred ways. No person, not even the best one, can give your soul all it needs. If you are looking for all your meaning, all your satisfaction and all your hopes in a person. You're not just doing a disservice to yourself, you're doing a disservice to that person as well. Be that your spouse, be that your kids, be that your friends. Because we were made to place our hopes and desires on one thing and one thing alone. And there's only one thing that's big enough for us to rest all of our hopes and concerns on it and it to be able to take the weight. And that's the gospel that we read about in this book. And that is why Paul says that everything else other than it is slavery, because as David Foster Wallace writes, anything else will eat you alive. Because the gospel doesn't have the tyrannical gods of the pagan cults. God's not sitting up in a cloud waiting to throw down a thunderbolt whenever you mess up. But he's a God who sends his one and only son to die for you, even when you didn't love him back. A God who saw you on your worst day and thought, them, I want them. 
We have a God who is not going to run out like maybe our bank account will. We have a God who allows us to put our career in perspective whenever we see that we can do all things to his glory, but they are not the ultimate glory because he is. We have a God who allows us to put our relationships in proper context because we realize that they are not end goals in and of themselves, but they are to be something that are to be shaped and infused with a God-shaped love. We see that the gospel and the gospel alone changes us in a way that we need to be changed to live as we were meant to live. Because the gospel says that you are forgiven not because you earned it and not because you need to tick all the right boxes and not because of something that you might puff yourself up with pride about, but because we worship a forgiven God and he delights to forgive. And whenever we encounter that kind of gospel forgiveness that is held out to us in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we see that we have a God who isn't concerned about us necessarily ticking all the right boxes, but a God who is seeking us to adore him and to love him and placing everything in that perspective. Um, There was a minister, R.C. Sproul, I was talking to a therapist one day and um, he began, they began chatting about what, the minister, what he as a minister believed. And he said, well, I believe that um, because of Jesus, we are forgiven freely and we don't need to carry about guilt and shame. Uh, and it doesn't need dealt with by constantly going back to a priest for forgiveness. It doesn't need constantly going and performing a ritual. It's something that's done finally on the cross. And the therapist said, oh, I wish I could tell people about that. Because he said, so many people he could see their lives wrapped by shame and by guilt about things, never having closure, never having them dealt with. And he said, I wish I could take them to somewhere like that where stuff could be dealt with finally and completely. Because the gospel alone gives us freedom. And the gospel alone gives us the freedom to live as we were made to live because it puts everything right in perspective. Anything else we worship will eat us alive. But we were made for this God. And so let's worship him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though we were sinful, even though we were not lovely, even though we were wicked, Christ died for us. Lord, would we put our hope and our trust in him? And Lord, help us see the ways that we are trusting in something lesser than Jesus and help us bring our hearts back into alignment with him. We pray this in his mighty name, amen.